welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Schriever, also known as Cave Dan Online, and I'm joined today by Zach Manasymbol Ryle. Zach, welcome. Yeah, it's great to be back. Uh, just got back to Toronto yesterday on a red-eye flight, the first one in my life, I believe, uh, from Calgary, where it is freezing cold, and now I'm happy to be here where it's only 32 degrees in Freedom Units, uh, which is much, much warmer. Thank goodness. Calgary, so you must have been at the Canada Regional Championship. I certainly was, yeah, the second Canada Regional Championship. Uh, we're very lucky in Canada that our country is so wide uh, and inaccessibly treacherous <laughs> that they've deemed it uh, necessary for us to have two regional championships per season so far, one in the East, one in the West. In case the first regional champion perishes in a dog sledding accident or something. Yeah, it's more common than you'd think. Okay. <laughs> So you you were at both of them, right? There was two consecutive weekends. I was. It was uh it was two weeks apart. I was at Toronto uh, two weeks ago, and then uh, Calgary just this last weekend. Okay. What were your impressions? I mean, I know you were going to it, but I mean this this was kind of the this is where it all comes together. Like, was it worth it? All of the shenanigans with RCQs and two step qualifications, like right. Um, well, first of all, my position was to be a judge and I was mainly positioned on judging competitive side events. So each of the days would have like a, a large open, uh, of a format. Uh, in most cases it was uh, modern on the Saturday and pioneer on the Sunday so that the people who washed out of the RC could compete in the Sunday open. Um, spoiler alert, both Sunday opens were won by the same player who was qualified for both regional championships. So that was Edgar Magalesh, uh, primeval Titan pro in uh, modern and uh, all around spectacular magic player. Both weekends, he washed out of the regional championship and then just took the same deck, went to the pioneer open one first place both times. But anyway, uh, my position was not on the main event, but what I will say is that um, having the qualification required like so you have to qualify for your regional championship that mm -hmm. basically is a non-issue for the average competitive player there were so many invites available through so many different tournaments through so many small stores midway through the season very often people would get to a top four and three out of four people would already have the invite so the other person would just get it um so there's plenty of people who are just kind of saying yeah, we know that you like had to qualify for this, but it's like it's a pretty soft qualification. Um, not that I think that's a bad thing, especially for this first batch. So it'll be interesting to see if that changes in the future. But the overall impression of the tournament at large was very positive, very exciting. However, I will say as a competitive player and as a judge, uh, this is one of the first large scale events I've seen in Canada since COVID uh, ended. I think there was an open a few months back, um, but uh, this is was bigger than that. And it was staggering to me, um, players on the top tables still being quite unused to playing paper magic at a very high level. Just the number of game rules violations, uh, missed triggers, and questions about fairly obvious things to me as a uh, MTGO aficionado were surprising. But it just goes to show that being really tight and tuned up on your uh, competitive policy and um, interactions isn't the only thing that can lead to success. Uh, most of the people at the top tables pick good decks and they play them generally well. Um, so you can get over that experiential burden because at the moment, everyone has a bit of it. And you attribute that mainly to rust. Yeah, I mean, people have just not had to play a lot of competitive rules enforcement level magic. Um, and when they do, uh, they're sometimes playing it locally where people are a lot more forgiving. Mord's example from the other week, um, when you guys were talking about policy where he often doesn't get, uh, judge calls because people know him to be a fine upstanding member of the community. Uh, that's all well and good until you're at an event where anonymity is so high because everyone's traveled from everywhere. Nobody knows anyone that they're playing against unless the person is famous and it really doesn't. You know, you don't get a lot of points by just being nice to be nice. If you want to win, uh, a lot of people are going to hold you to the strictest level of policy. Not everyone, but 
there are a lot of people who are saying, you know, I, I took a $300, $400, $500 flight and I'm going to use everything that I can to do the best that I can in this event. Okay, so you weren't able to join us for our discussion there. Obviously, we droned on for quite some time about <laughs> the ethics of trying to gain these little edges. Whose responsibility is it to know all the quarantine cases of the rules? Do you owe it to yourself? Do you owe it to your deck? Do you owe it to your opponent to hold them to the highest standards of keeping track of all the triggers? You're saying that just from a judging perspective, from a practical perspective, at a high-level competitive events, there's going to be this level of try-hardness, as we called it. Yeah, some people are going to do that. And the most important thing that I recommend to anyone who really wants to get into this is to educate yourself on policy, either by reading the documents, the uh, Magic Tournament rules, and the Infraction Procedure Guide. Those are mostly used by judges, but they are open to everyone. And uh, knowing these rules can safeguard you against the way people could try to exploit it against you. Now, you can also use that knowledge to try to exploit these rules against others. Uh, I'm not encouraging that. I'm just saying it's a two-sided thing. There are rules, there is policy, and as a judge, I have to enforce it as fairly and consistently as I can. So even if I don't agree with something that's in the rules, if it's in there, I have to do my best to enforce that. And, you know, policy is in its worst form ever, except for all the previous iterations. You know, and we're always, the, the Judge Academy and the, the people who are higher up in that, they're always iterating on policy and trying to make it better. Um, so my personal belief is we're at the best place we've ever been with it. Um, while there are loopholes and some of them are staggeringly uh, wide, let's say, um, the best you can do is just try to safeguard yourself and understand what the current policy is. And would you agree with the general sentiment that I think both Morton and I were, were trying to circle around this point that the burden should not really be on the policies or on the judges even if there's something that we don't like about you know the tournament mindset or something like that? You can't expect the judges to change it. No. Like the judges just have to do their job. And as a player, I try to do exactly what you guys were suggesting. I was playing Prison Tron in a competitive event a few weeks ago. My opponent kept chalice checking me. I got it every time. And then when I played spells into their Esper Sentinel, they were missing their trigger, but I preemptively paid for it anyway. And the reason I did that was twofold. One of it was, you know, spirit of fairness. And another one was I knew this kind of player that they could be very, you know, trying to get you on stuff um i mean they were trying to chalice check me so i just went ahead and paid for their esper sentinel whenever it was relevant and the reason i did it was i did not want them to just be like well you didn't mention that you were paying for it so i'm just gonna draw my card now like because that's like i just didn't want to get into that kind of situation so i was like i'm gonna assume that they're gonna get it even though they demonstrated that they wouldn't in at least one case and protect myself that way because if I was playing on Magic Online, that would be how it goes down. I'm used to that. I'm not. I'm not the kind of person who goes like, "Oh, they're missing this trigger. I'm going to try to get them. I'm going to assume that I can get it." You know. You know, we just put the episode out, and I felt I felt good about it. I felt good about where we landed. You should. And I almost convinced myself that you know most people agree with this. And then just today, like another another discourse came out about you know this player Daryl Ayers. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, vaguely, I know the name. So he had a situation in a legacy tournament where his opponent, you know, cast a ponder looking for the game winning spell, found it in their top three cards, and then went to like take the game winning spell and was going to proceed to win the game. But the opponent got confused and resolved the ponder as if it was an expressive iteration, a card uh -oh. that was also in their hand. So <laughs> judges were called, you know, the whole thing. Well, what now? How do we resolve this, et cetera, et cetera. And Daryl was very upset because he felt like. You know, all this, this, this equity, this tournament equity, as he called it, was created by the opponent's mistake of mistakenly, you know, resolving the ponder in the wrong way. Um, and that he felt like the judges had unfairly, you know, taken the equity away by essentially ruling in the opponent's favor, letting the opponent somehow correct their mistake to, you know, resolve it as the correct card, not as an expressive iteration, but as a ponder, which it was, um, and, and win the match, essentially. Right. Well... I mean, again, I'm not familiar on the details in this one. I really don't want to get lost in the weeds in it. Um, I, I only can see that that player would have lost advantage by resolving that as the wrong spell and then immediately calling attention to it. I cannot 
fathom how that would have been advantageous to do. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the discussion was, you know, Daryl and his friends slash supporters felt like the judges took a strange implementation that gave too many advantages to the opponents. But at the core of it was, I mean, the, the very premise, and I think he said this in his explanation, was the opponent had the game won, essentially. Like, they both understood that the opponent, the opponent had found in their top three cards the card they needed to win the game. And Daryl had saw like this little glimmer of hope that, oh, the opponent said the wrong thing, put a card in exile as if it was an expressive iteration, when it actually, in fact, was a ponder. The opponent had both in their hand. Right. This kind of thing where it's like this mindset of like, oh, this is my chance. I'm going to get him here. I, I have equity. I, have, I'm, I can see the top eight. It's just steps away. I just need to win this judge call. Like things like that. Just, that's, that is actually the problem, I think. I agree. I mean, and that's not, that's not the way anyone wants a game of magic to be decided. I, I mean, other than the most hardcore, like completely by the rules player who's like, hey, if you can get them on a GRV and it turns out that that's their third GRV of the day and that's going to give them a game loss, then get them. Get them, man. Yeah. Just get them because <laughs> that's their fault. They didn't play carefully enough. And it's like, I, I explained to a player that they were telling me that um, there was one policy discussion that came up, which I'm not going to get into the details of. And they were saying, I'm going to be clear every single time and always announce my triggers so that I will never exploit the way that policy is written. And what I said to them is, you, you know, you say that now and I believe you. I really do. Mm. I'm, I'm not questioning you. But you get to day two of a large tournament, 13th round, and you have been pointing it out every time and you forget once but your opponent gives you an opportunity where you can go oh i did miss this trigger but it's not missed yet i'm still within the window where it's acceptable for me to say i'm going to resolve my trigger i don't know what i would do and i don't know what you will do this is a thing that comes up all the time people say i'm always going to be good I'm always going to be, you know, uh, a, a generous <laughs> player. And then a situation comes up where, you know, you're deep in a tournament, there's high stakes on the line, and you make a different decision that you didn't think that you would make. And I'm not going to blame you for that as a judge. I'm going to uphold policy the best I can because that's what I'm there to do, you know? Um, so that's one of those things where it's very difficult, you know, to make these claims uh, about it. We just have to work with the system we have right now, and if we want to make improvements on it, there's a right way to do it, you know? Picturing Bilbo Baggins holding the ring in his hand. Yeah. After all, why not? Yeah, why not? Why, shouldn't why not I me? clean my missed trigger? Right. It's, you're not cheating. You're literally following the letter of the law, yeah. and you're not, you know, depending on the person's definition. I mean, Emmy was talking about it very, very, uh, very well, in that it you know, some people would say it's unsportsmanlike and other people would say, well, it's within the rules. It can't be unsportsmanlike if it's in the, within the rules, right? And I'm on the side of I like to give my opponents uh, opportunities to make mistakes and I like them to give me opportunities to make mistakes, honest mistakes, small mistakes. Those are fine. Um, however, if you follow the letter of the law, every time a player makes a mistake in the game, we should be calling a judge and they should be getting a penalty, right? That's literally the way the policy is written so what i refer to and i came up with a, a new ish term for this is schrodinger's magic game or schrodinger's judge call <laughs> okay explain which is that as a judge if i'm not present watching a game i don't know if it's actually being played correctly or not the only people who are there like the two players are the ones who are deciding that that game of magic is played correctly and only when I approach it, only when a judge is called to the table, does it collapse into either it was or wasn't. Um, there are plenty of things that maybe should have been called as game rules violations or mistriggers, what have you, whatever, what have you, that players can decide not to between themselves based on the social contract. And that's what you're talking about is that there's a, a, an optimal way for magic to be played where we hit that sweet spot where we're doing our best to disincentivize people from exploiting the system, but we're also doing our best to incentivize people to act uh, kindly, to have fun. Because at the end of the day, it should be fun to go and compete. It should be exciting, it should be high stakes, but it should be fun. Well said. Well, it's been two years since we've had a chance to actually sink our teeth into these, you know, actual 
paper dilemma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Apologies for lingering on it for so long, but I, I think it is good to like hash this all out to remind ourselves like how we actually feel, how we stand on these kind of difficult issues. And and they are difficult. And one of the things that comes up all the time is players who don't have a strong philosophical background with the judging policy, uh, weighing in on how it's written, weighing in on how it should be written. And as a very responsible judge who's kind of experienced and I try to stay on top of these things, we've had a lot of these discussions. Judges have these discussions all the time within our groups. Um, And so a lot of things people suggest, like both players have to be responsible for everything, they lead us down some bad roads, which is why the policy is the way it is now. So feel free to come by the Mana Simple stream and you can always pester me about your policy questions and etc. There are parts of policy I agree with, there are parts of policy I don't agree with, Uh, other judges are the same or different. Um, It's not homogenous and we're always doing the best we can. Well said. All right. Shifting gears. We do have, believe it or not, some non-judging, non-rules related topics today. Actually, we got a bunch of them. Isn't this a judge podcast now? (laughs) Don't we just talk about policies and dish? Because let me tell you, some of the players at the Canadian RC were wearing some dynamite outfits and we could just get into that. Oh, Oh, and there were some memes. There were some memes fired off over the weekend. Oh, baby. Yeah, here are men on the floor reporting live from Calgary. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But instead of that, instead of that, we could probably touch on some of these preview cards. Um, but before we get to those, if we have any housekeeping, uh, we should probably get that out of the way because you can always uh, head over head over to patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing and contribute to this podcast uh, to help us continue to bring things to you all um, at the highest level we can sometimes we need to buy microphones for people in argentina no one in specific or sometimes we need to uh just uh incentivize more to move his mattress for (laughs) recording reasons and you can do that by heading over there but you also get a bunch of perks and you get access to our discord where you can stay on the ground and up to date with all of the uh, newest ideas from the craziest brewers or some people who are more competitively focused or just Kilgore Trout's latest thoughts on uh, whatever insanity that he's playing and uh, it's a great place to be yeah absolutely and we do have two new patrons we'd like to welcome this week they are Patrick T and Taylor F Thank you. Thank you very much to both those individuals. Speaking of perks, one of the perks you get by being a member of the Faithless family is you get to vote for our card of the month. We just finished up a round of voting. We have the results. I've just gotten word that I am authorized to reveal the results of the poll. 14 cards were on the ballot. Great cards, great options, and most of them garnered quite a lot of support with a couple front runners that ended up pulling ahead of the pack. So we'll just count down the top five, let's say. Three-way tie for fifth place. Each of these cards garnered uh, 24% of the vote. Those cards were Touch the Spirit Realm, a card that's pleasantly surprised, perhaps, to find has been making big waves in modern. Surge Engine a card that actually tested uh, in some combat thresher decks last week, and it did not perform quite as well as I hoped. So <laughs> while I was quite excited for Surge Engine, maybe it's for the best that it did not uh, did not crack the, the top three this time in the voting. And also in tied for fifth place was Mechanized Warfare. Very interesting enchantment, like a mini Torbrand that's hard to remove. That was one of my votes. It was just, uh, it was just interesting enough. All right, those were all tied for fifth. Take us into the top three now, Zach. Yes, in fourth place, we have the most insane suggestion um, by the most insane brewer who is always able to drum up a uh, unnerving amount of support in their ideas. It's Blood Funnel brought to us by Kilgore Trout, which did not yet come with the song. Maybe uh, the song is upcoming. Oh, God. A song called Blood Funnel? What genre would that be? I don't know. Some kind of doom metal or something core. I don't know what core means, but I do know it's going to be heavy and fast. As I said, I got kind of obsessed with this card. I'm sure it's terrible. It's but... it's absolutely awful. I mean, there's there's just... It, 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 Heartless Summoning <sighs> is so much better than this card, and that card is not playable, so... <laughs> 
And yet, and yet. <laughs> no, but that, that you, you don't get it. After Gearport Orrery, there is an incentive. People want to give us the worst possible cards and just see us 0405 a bunch of leagues. There's an incentive there for our pain and suffering. And I support that. But luckily, uh, Kilgore got wide support. Twenty-five, actually, almost twenty-six percent. Yep, almost twenty-six percent of the vote going towards Blood Funnel, which took third place. Yep, almost twenty-six percent of voters voted for Blood Funnel. Correct. And luckily for us, we have uh, cultivated a culture that does not want to call it, cause us undue pain and suffering constantly. To which point we have our third place choice. Second place choice. Sorry, our second place choice. Oh, we were tied for fifth and then third. Got it. That's how that works. Yeah. We have our incredibly uh, exciting, not that exciting, but Dave actually thought we did an entire week on it already, but we haven't. It's Planeswalker Kaito Shizuki from Neo Kamigawa. Uh, Kaito just missing the top spot. 32% of voters picked Kaito. And I mean, hey, we just found out that Kaito and... Wandering Emperor, Kaito and Bay are going to be in the new Phyrexia expansion. So, who knows? We don't know what the card does yet. We don't know if Kaito is still fighting for the good guys or if Kaito has been completed. But, yeah, don't lose hope, Kaito fans. Well, for those who are not tuned in, I got the bombshell dropped on me today, so I'm dropping it on all of you. There are ten Planeswalkers in this set, and five of them will be completed which is a terrifying thought considering like some of these are new, some of these we just got back and some of these are long time beloved characters. It's funny to look at this list and think to myself, well, like if I was going by pure popularity of the characters, like I can kind of see a bottom two um, who probably <laughs> should be completed in terms of like not damaging sales and stuff. But they did do Tamiyo specifically for the reason that they thought, you know, it would be really horrific for people to lose this beloved, you know, very gentle, very, you know, good natured Planeswalker to the Phyrexians. So this is a scary list. I mean, just based on what you just said, you know, they're going to split up Kaito and the Wandering Emperor. Like they're both in the set. Yeah. One of them is going to be completed. This got to be right. Uh, I would assume so. I would assume so. Um, I would I would think it would be Kaito. He's 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 newer and less intriguing. Um, but we have a, a, a list of other planeswalkers, including we'll talk about the newly spoiled card um, for Koth, which I believe means he hasn't been completed. So we can kind of breathe a sigh of relief that we just <laughs> got Koth back and he hasn't been completed. But there's a, a list of other ones, including one from Kaldheim I definitely don't remember the name of, and uh, the one from Ikoria who I also don't remember the name of but it certainly have played at least once <laughs> we regret to inform you that tyvar kel has been completed by the folks <laughs> tyvar tyvar kel what happened no and then it just pans to jace going who <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, anyway we got sidetracked we were just about to reveal the winning no card. no i'm, I'm sidetracking <laughs> on purpose because let me tell you something this is so exciting i actually threw some of my support behind our winning card um and did in fact go and vote for it so dan would you like to do the unveiling as the ceo it is your right of first refusal all right it is rivaz of the claw one black red for a whole bunch of abilities most of them dealing with dragons and also menace but mostly dragons so Rivaz taps for mana you can use to cast dragons. Rivaz lets you cast dragons, dragon creatures I should say, directly out of your graveyard. You get to rebuy a dragon for free. Rivaz does something else. He has a fourth ability that I can't even remember what it is, but <laughs> he does a lot of stuff. So this is definitely going to be like the dragon month, Project Dragons we might say. Rivaz is a gold card, so you not only cast Niv-Mizzet Reborn, but can be found by Niv-Mizzet Reborn. There's so many cards that, you know, deal with Dragon Tribal, and yet there's never really been a Dragon's deck. So I think, I hope that that's the dream, the collective dream we all share, that we're going to discover something for Rivaz, something for the Dragon's Tribe. And I'm excited to see where this month takes us. Yeah, it's just a pretty powerful card, a 3-mana three 3-3, three, three, uh, that on the next turn you can ramp up to 6 
total mana, assuming you hit your land drop for a dragon spell. I mean, there's some powerful dragons out there, so we're going to have to figure out the best combination of colors, the best combination of cards. Um, but it's nice that this is like a modern designed card, a uh, modern power level enabler. It's 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 nice to see cards like this and Grease Fang um, doing their thing and not being like a 1-3. So that's our next card. We're going to take a crack at it. Probably next week will be our first episode kind of brewing into Revaz, but people are already working on this in the Discord. Ideas are flying, and you know we would love to hear your ideas as well. If you are listening, you're like, I have the perfect Revaz deck. Get at us. We are on Twitter. We are at FaithlessMTG. <laughs> We're on Twitter for the time being. <laughs> Who knows <laughs> how that's all going to go. <laughs> but you, you can reach us. You can also check out our webpage. Uh, we have a contact form there, etc. All right. Enough housekeeping. Let's talk spoiler season. Somehow, it's already time for the first look at Phyrexia All Will Be One. They gave us, what, five, six cards? Is that right? I believe it is. Yeah, six could be five. Uh, and we've got a very exciting one right off the bat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Big Mama, L.S. Norn. We all, we all knew she was coming. L.S. Norn, Mother of Machines. I feel like I should not evaluate any of these since I missed so badly on Shale at the Apocalypse. I'm going to leave this one to you, Zach. <laughs> Tell me about L.S. Norn, Mother of Machines. What does she do and is she powerful? Alrighty, so for four and a white, five mana value, you get a legendary creature Phyrexian Praetor with Vigilance. Size 4-7, so very large for its mana cost. If a permanent entering the battlefield causes a triggered ability of a permanent you control to trigger, that ability triggers an additional time. And permanents entering the battlefield don't cause abilities of permanents your opponents control to trigger. Whoa, this is the greatest torpor orb slash panharmonicon uh, and i can't wait to see the saffron olive brew with it is it going to be good enough for some of our competitive formats uh well it's definitely going to be fun there is some insane things like every pitch elemental getting doubled up um i know i'm sure some people are going to be excited to double solitude and double grief uh while shutting down their opponents pitch elementals that's pretty sick Modern card design is all about triggers, right? Creatures have to have an ETB. I guess so. And not even creatures. Now it's like, okay, you're, if you're not playing creatures, you're playing Fable the Mirror Breaker. You're playing Leyline Binding. You're playing Urza Slugger. These are all triggers, right? These oh, God. Well, actually, no. Oh, God. Fable for two goblins. Each goblin makes two treasures. That's four treasures. I may have spoken too soon there. Let me let me read LS Norm more. Oh no, closely. that's entering the battlefield. Okay, permanent entering. Actually, yeah, so sagas, so sagas won't get doubled sagas up. Sagas are trigger caused by yeah. the chapter counters playing on. Correct. Leyline binding, though, yes, this does shut down your opponent's leyline binding. Karuga becomes a regular hippo, no longer a super hippo. <laughs> so. Well, unless you're playing Karuga, LS Norn is Karuga compatible. Okay, so I mean. <laughs> You could easily find a deck that already is full of triggers. Convince yourself that you should put some Ellis Norn into it. Will that actually pay off? I mean, it's five mana. It itself does not have an ETB, so I think that's that's part of the challenge. But, you know, one very interesting curve you could do is play Kiora on turn three. That gives you enough mana for Ellis Norn on turn four, triggering Kiora twice to draw two cards. Yep. Insanity. This this card is very, very powerful. Um, the question is, will it actually see play in competitive formats? That remains to be seen, but it's certainly got a lot of potential. Uh, a lot more potential than Shieldred. Yes, I still i am going to go ahead on a limb and say, in most formats, Shieldred is not that great. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> Shieldred's all-time record against me is like 30 and 2 or something. I think I've beat Shieldred twice. One of the most powerful cards in what is possibly the best deck in Pioneer. Um, probably one of the better cards in Standard. Still, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's not that good. And it's not that spectacular, but Elish Norn is. All right, next up, Blue Sun's Twilight. Blue Sun's Twilight? Perhaps a cycle of these? Uh, I would assume so. Yeah. X blue blue sorcery gain control of target creature with mana value X or less. 
if X is five or more, create a token that's a copy of that creature. So you steal something, and if you paid a lot of mana, you steal and you copy it. Yep. Um, as mentioned in the uh, comments here by somebody, yeah, I assume David's you, comments. this Sorry. is super powerful and grindy mid. Oh, it's David's comments. Oh, well, this is super powerful and grindy mid range list. This is the kind of card uh, like mass manipulation for anyone who remembers that thing. This is the kind of card I think of as a squarely standard card. Um, this is going to be one of those things where there are mid range soup decks and they just start slamming back and forth with like blue suns, twilights and and creatures with ETB two for ones. And uh, it's going to become quite the mid range mess. And this card could become an integral part of that. Very similar to the card Entrancing Melody from Ixalan, which just didn't have the bonus text. You would see that every once in a while, you know, mono blue and standard. Sometimes someone would like dare to steal a Tarmogoyf with it in, in an older format, but not really. So in order for this to be like a meaningful upgrade, you, you have to actually get to X equals five some amount of the time. And not very many decks are built to do that. Although we have played like some pretty interesting Galazeth Prismari brews that do generate enough mana to do that. It's also one of those things where it's like, it's a good mid range on mid range tool. It's not a good control on aggro tool. Um, stealing their creatures. They're usually pretty small or they usually put, have pretty marginal upsides. You're going to get it tapped and then you're probably going to die a lot of the time and being behind by two CMC or two mana value on, on the tempo of the card you're stealing is usually not going to be good mm. enough. So it, it this is a card that, again, squarely exists in a mid-range versus mid-range kind of matchup. Next up, a reprint, Phyrexian Obliterator. Oh boy. Black, 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 black. 5-5 five, five, Trample, Phyrexian Horror. Whenever a source deals damage to Phyrexian Obliterator, that source's controller sacrifices that many permanents. It's the anti-negator. Well, it's the perfected negator, right? Behold, blessed perfection. <laughs> yep. Gosh. I'm glad that they gave it a uh, kind of creepy, horrifying flavor text this time, rather than trying to improve on the previous one, because that is one of my, in my opinion, one of the greatest flavor texts of all time. So the new flavor text implies that Shaildred's faction is somehow going to war against Elish Noren's faction. Oh, well, if you were not aware of this, I, I believe it's been known for a long time that uh, that Phyrexia was probably doomed to civil war. Uh, each of the Praetors has their own interpretation of how Phyrexian, you know, how Phyrexia should be based on the color of mana that they represent. Um, I believe Elish Norn is kind of leading uh, in terms of uh, dominance of the plane, but it's always been the case that like, red with Urbrask has been like the the splinter cell which is like not really kind of going along with the um phyrexian zeitgeist trying to trying to go their own way little fleetwood mackinen <laughs> yeah i can picture Urbrask jamming out to fleetwood mac why not so as for the phyrexian obliterator itself this is new to pioneer every once in a while you'll find someone playing this at fnm in modern it's not an impressive card and yet, if you're not packing the correct removal for it, it's kind of like a shale dread where it's like, hey, wait a second, how do I beat this? Right? <laughs> like, if your plan happened to be, I'm going to deal damage to my opponent's creatures, whether through combat or through lightning axes, stomps, what have you, you're not going to get anywhere against an obliterator. So there's a chance that, you know, in certain metagames or in certain matchups, this card just dominates the battlefield. Absolutely. Um... There is a mono black mid-range deck in Pioneer that's doing pretty well. And part of its strength is being kind of better than black red in the in the mirror match. Um, although I've seen black red beat it a bunch of times over the last little while. So um, it's not perfect. The one flaw with this card, I would say right now, is the current state of uh, Pioneer is such that there are a lot of black removal spells that will just kill this floating around, whether that be power word kill or uh, revolted fatal push. But as you said, there will be metagames in the future where this is a good choice. And um, if decks are going all the way up to being the size of uh, mono black devotion, as there is great merchant of Asphodel uh, legal in that format, then this is going to be a pretty powerful card. And if you just want to brew with it, uh, it's good for black devotion powers mm -hmm. up your gray merchants you can also do some cute stuff with the fight mechanic. 
So if you have a spell, let's say, that yep. <laughs> causes your obliterator to fight one of their creatures, even though it's your spell, the fighting, the action of fighting causes their creature to be the source of the damage. So they will get obliterated by that play. Um, and there's some new fight spells that we've been tracking in the last few sets that, you know, they're modal, they're, you know, they're not so bad. You can, you can always get something out of them, even if there's no creature in play. So maybe this is the time to experiment in that direction. Yeah. And as we pointed out, a lot of them cost a single green mana. So a green black deck, possibly with the, um, uh, the zombie dinosaur rotting registrar. Um, that that's kind of right in the same camp. There's also um, from Capenna. There's like the six five or whatever that fights, uh, or is good at fighting. I forget the name of that card, but uh, there there's 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 a niche for this possibly in a green black fight deck. All right, tell me about Slowbad Iron Goblin. Well, Slowbad uh, <laughs> died for the sins of Mirrodin. Uh, became a planeswalker and then gave up his spark to save Mirrodin or something like that at the end of the books. They were very confusing and very strange and super violent. Now we've got Slowbad back. He's two and a red for a 3-3 legendary creature Phyrexian Goblin Artificer. Is a single ability, tap, sacrifice an artifact. Add an amount of red mana equal to the sacrifice artifact's mana value. Spend this mana only to cast artifact spells or activate abilities of artifacts so more restrictive than a power stone but theoretically kind of powerful with some cards with affinity um so that you can then hard cast a larger artifact or activate the ability of a larger artifact oh god that's so much mana <laughs> it, can, it can be a lot of mana um big downside is that slow bad itself is not an artifact um so as you usually point out putting a non-artifact in your uh heavy artifact synergy deck is often it demands that that card be exceptionally good. Is this? I don't know about that. Um, but you can sacrifice a Metalwork Colossus for 11 red mana. Which you can use to cast your next Metalwork Colossus, because you can only use it on artifact spells or abilities. Well, hopefully you're not Hopefully you're not paying full retail for that, but yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, okay, cool design. Fun card for Commander. Cards like this, you know, they don't have haste, so... <laughs> And they're not really good at combat, so you play it, it's an investment in your future, right? You have to find a turn where you can just play a 3-3 and pass, and then hope that it starts to pay you off by activating for a few turns in a row, perhaps. Or just, like, activating once and doing something really mm -hmm. spectacular, but it's not really a realistic play in one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, I would love to sacrifice experimental synths all day long, but it's just not, this is not the tool for that. There's cars that are better at that. Yeah, absolutely. We do have a uh, more aggressively costed card, though, in Jor Kadeen, First Gold Warden. For red-white, we have a legendary creature, Human Rebel. It has Trample, and it's a 2-2. And it has another trigger. Whenever Jor Kadeen, First Gold Warden, attacks, it gets plus X plus X until end of turn, where X is the number of equipped creatures you control. Then, if Jor Kadeen's power is 4 or greater, draw a card. It, uh, no, no, this is no. This is a no for me, dog. Trying to remember when was the last time I controlled an equipped creature. I mean, I was just playing Hammer Time, but uh, that deck doesn't play red, so. Yeah. This doesn't have haste. It doesn't have vigilance. It doesn't, like, it's it, It's just, they needed to put more words on this card for it to be good enough. One possibility is, okay, you, you just say the equipment thing is a red herring. Forget about that. All I need to do is get Jorkadine's power up to four, and then I can just draw a card every time I attack, right? Forget the equipment stuff. I'll just, you know, use a Luminarch Aspirant and a Thalia's Lieutenant, because it is a human. So maybe sure. that's, like, secretly the, the strength of the card, and you don't have to, like, figure out if there's an equipment deck in Pioneer, which there isn't. Uh, people have been trying to make Hammer Time work. Um, it's really probably one equip uh, equipper away from being not awful. But this is not that equipper <laughs> no th this is this is not the enabler but this might become a part of the deck if we get that enabler okay but finally as prophesied we have koth fire of resistance no longer a regressive acronym um so uh for two red red we get a four loyalty planeswalker legendary planeswalker koth uh plus two search your library for a basic mountain card reveal it put it into your hand then shuffle Minus three, Koth Fire of Resistance deals damage to target creature equal to the number of mountains you control. 
And minus seven, you get an emblem with whenever a mountain enters the battlefield under your control, this emblem deals four damage to any target. So David is quite upset about this. I'm reading his notes right now. <laughs> he says they did cough dirty. I guess, yeah, I mean, the, the legacy of cough, the original cough, you could play it and attack for four. It was very impressive play. This cough for four mana, I mean, what are you doing for four mana? Well, you're either down ticking, you're going minus three, kind of like Chandra Torch of Defiance, to hopefully kill something, and then you have a one loyalty cough that can, you know, tick up a few times, pulling mountains out of your deck. Or, you know, if there's no good target for the minus three, you just start immediately plussing. It gains loyalty at a pretty fast clip, gets you into that ultimate territory, but, I mean, how many basic mountains are we really looking to play? Is, is Koth enough of a re reward for building a strange deck like that? I mean, there are mono-red decks, chunky red in when it existed in Pioneer, um, which it does not currently, but could again. It plays a lot of basic mountains, so it's, it's not completely out of the question. Um, one of the biggest downsides of this card, I think, is that the minus uh, cannot target Planeswalkers. It's a little bit surprising to me, but I guess it's reasonable. Um, sure. Uh, I don't. Yeah, I'm not about this, but I could see it getting played and not being awful. Um, but I think it's pretty poor. This tells me that if there's ten planeswalkers, five completed, five not, the uh, the resistance team is definitely the underdogs. <laughs> it's not looking good for us. Yeah, and if we look at some of these Planeswalkers, um, their recent versions compared to their older versions, they've just gotten worse and worse and worse. So, um, whereas some of the Phyrexian Planeswalkers are at least at least exciting. So, we'll see. Yeah, I see Jace, I see Kaya, I see Luca. Looks like Vraska, looks like Nissa. Is that Nahiri on the end? Mm -hmm. It is Nahiri. Uh, her most recent iteration was... Uh, very poor. And of course, Tyvar Kell. <laughs> and of course, Tyvar Kell. I mean, who could do without? Now, above this, we have some potential spoilers. I, I want to hope that Wizards is doing something similar to what they did with um, Phyrexia, New Phyrexia versus Mirrodin Pure. Uh, we have some Planeswalker art, uh, as they were depicted on their, uh, uh, their most recent printings. And then next to them, we have like a super scary sketch of them Phyrexianized. I'm wondering if they did sketches of all 10 of these in their Phyrexian version, just to kind of be like, you don't know who it's going to be. We'll, we'll throw you off by having sketches done of all of them. Um, that's what I'm hoping is happening here. So I'm not going to spoil it. But if you uh, have access to the show notes, you can go ahead and access that. Or if you have access to uh, the spoilers for Phyrexia, all will be one. You'll probably be able to see these. Um, yeah. Okay, so that's previews for today, at least. I don't know, we have, what, maybe another week or two before the previews kick off in earnest. Which means we have a little bit of time to uh, circle back on some loose ends. Uh, namely, Zach, you were testing one of the cards from two weeks ago, which was Third Path Iconoclast. I was, in Pioneer. You all uh, spotted the same deck that I did uh, a little while ago. It's a blue-red artifact uh, pile, I refer to it, uh, in the Pioneer format. It's, a, it's actually a Paradox Engine Emery combo deck. For those unfamiliar, Paradox Engine is a card that's banned in the Commander format, so it might be good enough for Constructed formats, right? I mean, I know you're joking, but it is, like, stunningly powerful. <laughs> I'm half joking, but I'm half serious. I've played it in modern, and it's kind of nuts with Urza, with Emery, with the, the, it. Instantly makes certain things kind of go nuts and combo off. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those cards where, okay, on its surface, it doesn't pass a lot of our tests, a lot of our heuristics for being a playable card, and yet, a lot of game states, you're like, ah, oh, well, you know, things are not going that great for me. But if I draw the Paradox Engine, I just win immediately. Or I guess so far ahead immediately. Yeah. So this deck is um, kind of reminiscent of a deck from the modern, sorry, from the um, Corset 2020 standard or Corset 2019 standard. There was a deck that existed in a brief moment in standard that was a mono blue storm deck. And the reason it existed was that Psy, Master Thopterist, and I think Paradoxical Outcome uh, as well as Aetherflux Reservoir came together in a deck that was able to storm off 
cast a large number of spells per turn and win the game uh, at that point. This is very reminiscent to me of that. Uh, Mox Amber was part of that deck as well. So this deck is playing uh, 16 lands, almost all of them red-blue hybrid. Um, then we've got four Mox Amber, four Ornithopter, two Tormod's Crypt, three Moon Snare Prototype, two Witching Wells. Um, I made a change to this deck. I'm playing four Mishra's Research Desk. We're also playing four Springleaf Drum, four Third Path Iconoclast, four Emery Lurker of the Lock, three Psy Master Thopterus, four Reverse Engineer, one Forsaken Monument, two Paradox Engine, and one of the kill conditions of the deck, uh, three copies of Girapur Aethergrid. So, um, this deck has two main plans. One of it is to put a third path iconoclast into play and create a large number of uh, artifact soldiers or Psy Master Thopterist into play to create a large number of 1-1 one, one, uh, flying Thopter tokens. So you have those uh, kind of overlapping plans with casting non-creature spells or casting artifacts. But then you have the actual combo side of it. You've got Emery Lurker of the Lock and Paradox Engine, um, which with certain zero mana spells or a Psy Master Thopterist um, can go uh, infinite in a number of ways, either casting cards out of your graveyard infinitely, generating infinite mana, or both. At which point you can find other payoffs, find a gear poor Aether Grid, and uh, shoot your opponent out of the game. I mean, yeah, the deck looks sweet. I completely forgot about gear poor Aether Grid as a card that even exists. Never really considered it a viable kill condition but you're playing three copies in the main deck. It's like your primary way to win. Yeah, it was. And uh, it, it worked quite well. Uh, if anyone's wor- excuse me, worried about uh, click-intensive combos, um, I am an experienced Magic Online player, but taking my opponent from 20 to 0 uh, took less than two and a half minutes, which is not the fastest combo ever, but it's not bad. And of the, the games you were playing, how often were you winning with Third Path Iconoclast, or what was the Iconoclast doing for you? So the interesting thing was the combo kill didn't come up quite as often as the uh, generate a huge amount of value and just uh, kill your opponent with a wall of tokens. Um, Forsaken Monument makes all your soldier tokens and all your Thopters 3-3s, which is pretty exciting. Um, but otherwise, it's a kind of medium card. So... This is a very interesting construction. It's got um, one of the biggest problems with these decks is there's not a huge number of great artifact options for slots uh, in these decks. So it's playing four Ornithopters and two Tormod Crypts. And the Ornithopters are a bit of concession to the Springleaf Drums, but the Tormod Crypts are just like, you kind of want more zero mana artifacts because they're necessary to go off with Paradox Engine. But almost all the time I was boarding them out in game two. Now, if you're linear plan is really good, that's not the end of the world. It's fine to have cards that make you go faster in game ones that you normally sideboard out for game twos. But it would be great. I'm exploring the uh, legal artifacts in Pioneer to find some other options for this deck. Um, I'd really appreciate input because this is a deck I think could be improved by some uh, sourcing of ideas. Already I've been working on the sideboard. I think the Karn Scion of Urza's will probably get cut for some uh, bank busters in that the Karns were fairly difficult to defend in the kind of matchups you'd want to bring them in. Although I want to highlight the Antiquities War is insane against Black Red. If you can resolve that card, you're very likely to win that game. So four Antiquities War in the sideboard for that matchup seems to be where you'd want to be at the moment. That's so interesting. So you had four Antiquities War in the sideboard and two Karn Sion of Rosa in the sideboard for the same matchups or for mm-hmm. different matchups? Because they're quite similar, right? I mean, I I didn't create this deck from the ground up. So my instinct is that they're for very similar kinds of matchups, the kind of matchups where you want to go a bit slower. um, You don't want to play out third path iconoclast Emery's uh, willy nilly because they're just going to die. You're just enabling your opponent's removal. So what you need to do is go a little bit slower and they're going to continually hold up their removal to try to make sure that you can't get going. And then you play something like an Antiquities War or Karn and that either distracts them enough that you can play out your other stuff or does its job of winning the game on its own. The problem with Karn is just the format is good at dealing with that card. Like, it's a Planeswalker. People are good at dealing with Planeswalkers. You can attack it. You can burn it. You can use a Dreadbore. Antiquities War, though, the red-black deck has basically no way to deal with that card. So that's an A+. Slam dunk. The list is cool. It does a couple things that I 
absolutely hate and I don't think I could ever get behind. Um, <laughs> I mean, the first one is that it doesn't play any interaction at all in the main deck. You look at the sideboard and it's like very specific interaction. It's three metallic rebukes, which we tend to put in the main deck when we're building artifact decks. These are in the sideboard here. Four Pithing Needle, four Pithing Needle, usually you'll see zero, maybe one or two if someone just wants to target, um, you know, I guess Mono Green would be the main thing you'd bring this in against, but four copies of Pithing Needle, and then two Shrapnel Blasts, which is quite mysterious to me. Look at the main deck, what are you doing in the main deck if you need to interact with the opponent? Almost nothing. I guess there's the Ether Grid, you can ping something. I mean, it it is definitely one of those difficult decisions. Uh, it might be acceptable to cut the two Tormont's Crypt from the main deck for Metallic Rebukes. Uh, it's going to make sh- make uh, some situations where you're not going to be able to combo a turn earlier, but having that piece of interaction might be better. Um, the Shrapnel Blast I put in from the previous version because it deals with all of the uh, three Toughness Plus creatures as well as things like Shieldred. Uh, you do not want to be staring down a Shieldred with a reverse engineer in your hand. Um, you have a ton <laughs> of extra artifacts floating around, basically always. So Shrapnel Blast is a totally fine card to play here. In addition to uh, Gearport Aether Grid, I was doing some research on potential other cards that would kind of say- serve the same condition of uh, being a combo kill. So um, we have uh, Hammer of Perforos, Aetherflux Reservoir, Grind Clock, all of those would basically do the same job. And the question is just like, which one of those is the least bad? It's possible Aether Grid is the least bad because it kind of does an okay job sometimes with Psy and Third Path Iconoclast generating so many artifacts that you can just ping stuff down. You know, this is, I, I'm still in my early stages of working on this, uh, but I'm very excited by the potential so far. Like, uh, four Pithing Needles, I'm pretty sure, is the way to go in beating Mono Green in that I was able to do it by drawing a Pithing Needle in the early game and I beat Mono Green by doing that. So it's not a perfect plan, but it's certainly better than trying to play Metallic Rebuke against them most of the time. So the other thing that I hate, hate, hate is 16 lands. Well, you have four Springleaf Drum and three Moonsnare Prototypes and four Mox Ambers. So your other option is playing more and getting flooded. Right, but like maybe that's just a better option. I don't know. I mean, how many times did you... I didn't have a lot of mana problems. You didn't have mana problems. Nope. Uh, and Reverse Engineer is castable off of Springleaf Drum, Mishra's Research Desk, uh, Mox Amber, Ornithopter. All of these things tapping for that usually gets you over the hump. So, I mean, it, it is... I don't know. It, it felt like that was very appropriate and worked out fine. Maybe a larger sample size would show me otherwise, but I, I think it's I think it works well. Yeah, it's not truly 16 lands because of the Moonstar prototypes and drums, and also the zero mana artifacts are functionally part of the mana base for the purposes of casting Reverse Engineer or even Emery early. Mm-hmm. And yet, yep. I don't know. I mean, do you keep one-landers here, or did you send back every one-land hand? No, I kept a bunch of one-landers. It depends on if it has a drum and a creature that can activate the drum. You know, if you've got a one-lander that has a drum, an ornithopter, and an emery, that's that's probably a keep. It's not a great keep. Uh, if you run into early removal, it's definitely going to be problematic. But, you know, the, the deck has such a high upside to explode. It's, it's very much like um, eight cast in modern. Sometimes they keep hands and it's like, well, if I draw a single cheap artifact within the first two turns... I'm going to go off really hard. If I don't, I don't. Um, and you just have to make your peace with that. Is this a better deck than Mono Green at doing that kind of explosive mid-range thing? Probably not. But it could be. And it's a car, it, it feels like a deck that with a few extra additions to it could be really up there. But again, my record is two two threes. I'm feeling a potential. That may not actually be the case. So you played two leagues. These are on your youtube channel is that correct uh not yet but they're on my twitch on my uh on my replays so you can go watch those completely for free right now back to back and if you had to diagnose the main reason why it was two three instead of three two or four one just matchups or the plan itself was Uh, a lot of games are really close a lot of games are really close and uh 
like I beat red black and I beat mono green. Uh, the most miserable matchup was the Karuga Fires deck that I played against. I think that's unwinnable. Uh, four temporary lockdowns is just kind of unbeatable. I'm pretty sure. And then more sweepers on top of that. Yeah. Running into those decks is pretty brutal. Um, it's going to be very difficult to combo them out and it's going to be very difficult to mid range them out. So uh, I think that matchup is pretty unsolvable. However, it's not super popular. So you just want to dodge it where you can. Everything else felt okay. Um, not great, not bad, just okay. So it didn't feel like I'd found the newest, most powerful thing, but something that has a lot of potential. Okay. Encouraging. Mm-hmm. So that's third path iconoclast in a few different flavors. Last item of the day, just want to check in on how the Brothers War is shaping up in our various formats. We've been playing a lot of Pioneer with our brews, but if you look at Modern, Modern is a format where even a small role player can have a big impact. Uh, we've been talking about cards like the Seren Steelseeker, the Scrapwork Mutt, and of course, the Bitter Reunion. This is one that Zach, I think you and Emmy were, you know, immediately saw a lot of potential in this card, and it seemed to be bearing out. Is that fair to say? I Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. This thing is everywhere. Um, specifically in two different kind of, uh, shells, there's uh, creativity decks that are playing it and having great success doing so. Um, and then there's like, I'm just going to refer to them as like non-creativity decks that look like creativity decks. There's a few like persist decks that are playing red and playing, um, Archon and, and playing some of the other things, uh, similar to that, that just aren't playing indomitable creativity. Um, which gives them a few potential advantages, but the creativity variants that are playing it are by far the most successful so far. So what makes the card such a success? Well, it's a specific play pattern, uh, I would say, which is playing turn two bitter union, discard a payoff card, and on turn three you play persist, as well as land, you give your payoff card haste, and you attack with it. If that card is Archon of Cruelty, you're getting two Archon of Cruelty triggers on turn three, uh, which is pretty powerful but on top of that it's just an okay card to play in almost any deck it's a two mana spell you discard a card you draw two and then it sits there and uh, has the potential to give your entire board haste at some point and while that's not normally an effect that would be good enough um there are certain constructions especially decks that were already playing persist um that can take big advantage of that um, and put their opponents in a squeeze. One of the most powerful things about some of the uh, versions of creativity they are playing persist is a lot of time your opponents will be set up to beat your creativity and you beat them with a persist. Then they'll feel like they need graveyard hate, which in no way interacts with indomitable creativity. So cards that cost one to red that require you to discard a card in order to draw two fresh cards. These have been around for ages. Mm -hmm. There's even bigger versions like Cathartic Reunion. Cathartic Reunion, different from the Bitter Reunion. <laughs> but uh, you can have a smaller version of the effect. There's Tormenting Voice. There's a Thrill of Possibility if you want it at instant speed. Yep. So my initial evaluation of Bitter Reunion was, okay, clearly decks don't actually want this effect. It's a little bit too inefficient. However, what you're saying is, you know, it's a fine play. You're not falling too far behind and there's, there's enough upside. How much of that is because Bitter Reunion does not have an additional cost? Like, there's no risk to casting it. I'm going to go ahead and say it's not much, um, but it's an amount. I mean, you know, if your Thrill of Possibility got spell pierced, that would suck. Um, on the flip side, you're playing at instant speed, so you have more opportunities to play around that. I'm going to give you a, a shrug and say an amount, uh, an incalculable amount, um, but an amount nonetheless. It's certainly possible. I would say the the card flow part of it, the fact that it integrates so well into Ren and Six decks, where you always have extra lands, where you you have a little bit more ability to freewheel, is uh, that that's another overlapping thing where it, this card is good because Ren and Six exists in uh, the same one of the same colors. I mean, is Thrill of Possibility an underplayed card, or is it the fact that this haste clause is actually worth a lot? 
Oh, no, the haste clause is worth a huge amount because some of the decks I've played were also playing Thrill of Possibility, but they were playing Archons and Primeval Titans or Furies or something like that, where taking advantage of haste with Primeval Titan is especially powerful. Taking advantage of haste with Archon of Cruelty is especially powerful. Um, That is a huge part of this card. It, It is this. You would play four of this before any number of the other ones that we're not seeing play every time. So is it possible, Zach, and this is a question that came up in our mailbag two weeks ago, is it possible that this is actually the most impactful card to come out of this set for Modern? I would say so. I would rate this as exceedingly more impactful than Haywire might, if only because Haywire might doesn't have a home, and realistically, I would say it didn't do a good job of creating one. Um, there are some Jun Saga decks around, and those are playing Haywire Might. I don't think that their success right now is due to the existence of Haywire Might, whereas Bitter Reunion has caused uh, an Indomitable Creativity variant that is Jund only to suddenly be 4 prelims, making it to the top three of challenges. This was not a deck. Now it is. Um, and it's playing four copies of the card. I think by a lot of metrics, this is going to be the most impactful card from the set and it's going to be around for a long time in modern uh, anytime you're building reanimator you should probably be considering this card anytime you're building a lot of different types of red mid-range decks you may want to consider this card high praise ringing endorsements but yeah checks out i mean that you can even think of play patterns like you play it in a black red mid-range deck and then later in the game you go here's my croxa oh yeah also it's attacking this turn that's a lot of damage. That's a lot more dangerous than a Croxa without haste. Yeah, it's nasty. I mean, haste is such an underrated ability, but usually the times when it's the most dangerous, those creatures don't have haste and we don't go out of our way to give them haste. But it's, I mean, it's such a low cost effect to put in the deck that. Right. Uh, I've played a lot of Urza decks with Lightning Greaves in them. And you know what? Lightning Greaves is frequently not good enough. I completely agree. But man, putting that on the constructs in that deck is insane. Uh, playing Urza Saga plus uh, Lightning Greaves is insane. Generating those tokens and having them have haste, it's such a different game. I don't know if you should be playing Bitter Reunion in any of those decks, but it bears out that giving haste to things that are not naturally hasted, there's a reason that it's powerful. Should we play Bitter Reunion and Urza together? I mean, this is a flavor win. We need to get Mishra in there somehow. One of the Mishras, any Mishra. <laughs> there is no playable Mishra, unfortunately, in my opinion. Uh, they did they did my boy dirty again. The original one's pretty good, actually. The time spiral one. Is it? Is whenever you play an artifact, you can search your library for a correct. exact copy of that? Is that correct? Also searches graveyards. And you put it in your hand? No, put it in play. It goes directly okay, into play. Okay. You put it in play. Okay. I... I I don't know what <laughs> like it, I guess it's cool with Mem Knight, but what else are we doing? I mean, so the, the problem is it doesn't have an enter the battlefield trigger. It needs to like create a Phyrexian Dragon Engine right. for free when you cast it, like Urza does. <laughs> that's that's the problem. Well, it also doesn't give you anything. Like Urza also gives you mana when it enters. And it gives you at least one artifact to generate mana with, but like you're gonna have other stuff kicking around. Like Mishra both like his static basically cost mana and doesn't give you anything if he immediately dies. So it's a twofold, twofold flaw. Just saying it's more powerful than it looks. Yeah, it's certainly better than any of the new ones. Although the one with un, un, with the unearth ability is like so tempting, right? Nah, for me, it's not. I, I, yeah, I don't like that word. What is it? Word sack of permanence. That's that doesn't do it for me. Oh, I agree. That ability is not very good. It's just that anytime there's a pa- powerful reanimation effect, right? Like Trash or Treasure, even before the newest set, like Trash or Treasure is always a card that's lurking, right? You're like, oh, it's like, it's like Tinker, you know? It's nowhere near as good as Tinker. In fact, it's a joke compared to Tinker. But if you didn't have access to Tinker, now, now we're talking maybe. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, lots of food for thought and uh, lots of decks taking advantage of uh, Bitter Reunion, a card that we had some hope for, uh, but certainly didn't have anything like this kind of expectation. Yeah, very impressive. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it for today. Zach, always a pleasure. 
Absolutely, Dan. Thanks for humoring my uh, <laughs> excessive verbosity. If you miss Zach, you can always check him out on the Mana Symbol channel. That's twitch.tv slash Mana Symbol, symbol like the musical instrument. While you're at it, go follow him on YouTube as well. And Twitter, you get nothing but medium takes from me on Twitter. Medium takes and wholesome pictures of food and drink. <laughs> All right. That'll do it for us for today. Zach, see you next time. Absolutely, Dan. Always a pleasure.